It's good to see um, all of you this evening. It's always good to be um, apart, gathered together uh, as the, the people of God on a weekly basis. Um, we are going through uh, the book of Acts. If you are new with us or weren't here the last couple of weeks, we are continuing um, down the, the journey of the book of Acts. And last week, uh, Josh opened up and actually kind of closed chapter one. We're in chapter two this evening. And um, Josh um, helped speak to the reality of God's people being obedient together, seeking God through prayer and through the scriptures, as Peter spans up and uh, lays claim to a passage in the book of Psalms, and uh, God uses that to uh, replace Judas and add to Matthias, making them the twelve. If you weren't able to um, hear uh, that message last week, as Josh mentioned earlier, um, those uh, sermons are being recorded, and you can find them either on Spotify by searching uh, Redemption Church of Greeley, or you can find it, I believe, um, on Realm. Um, if you uh, go on Realm, and then there's a way to get to the uh, post um, from there. So um, I, I trust and know that you will be um, served by that as, uh, as you do, as you listen to it. So now if you've got your Bibles, um, go ahead and open them with me to uh, Acts chapter 2. And um, we're going to begin uh, to get there. And as we get there, I'd like to just spend a moment praying um, and opening us our time up. So as you're getting to Acts chapter 2, uh, let's uh, join me in prayer. Lord God, you are great and greatly to be praised as that song um, gave us the reminder that you are the great sovereign one that has poured out um, your spirit onto us, and therefore we pour out praise unto your name. Lord God, we, um, we come before you as broken people, as uh, sinners in need of your grace, and uh, chiefly this evening as we um, consider um, Acts chapter 2 and just the monumental text thereof that you would pepper um, our time by your spirit to go forth and accomplish the purpose for which, you've, which you have, Lord, and um, that we would stand under your word, that I would um, stand behind it, Lord Jesus, that I would um, not bring any offense to it, that we would make much of you this evening, uh, that we'd make much of your name, make much of your son, Jesus, and the gospel um, and the hope that is only found in him, Lord. We love you grateful for the reality that you have loved us first. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's go ahead and grab um, uh, your Bibles, Acts chapter 2. Um, give me some grace along the way of some of these names. Dustin wants to come on up here and read it for me, so uh, by God's grace we're going to get through. So Acts chapter 1 a large and lengthy text this evening, 1 through 36. Follow along as I read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were seated. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one, 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from a nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitudes came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medeans and Emilialites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Philei, Egypt and the parts of Libya beyond the Syrian and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and answered them, men of Judah, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your, men, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon of blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the fangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in me, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy, Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to make him that he would set one of his descendants upon the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and on and of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know 
for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is a uh, great text, uh, full of deep truths for us this evening. Uh, Depending on your perspective, as we move through the book of Acts, it's either going to be a long journey or a quick one. Um, The book of Acts has 28 chapters in it, and right now we are planning on being in the book for about a year. And depending on your perspective, a year is a long time. Depending on whether you do the math and you see that uh, the book of Acts has 28 chapters in it, and that doesn't even mean that we get to uh, average two uh, sermons per chapter, you might feel like it's a quick journey. So it just depends on your perspective. Um, I say all of that uh, to simply ask for some grace um, for this sermon, um, and my study is by no means exhaustive on the topics that we're going to touch in these 36 verses. For God's word is a deep and endless well written by an infinite God to finite man. And yet, even in the midst of those depths and his infiniteness, as God's people draw near under his word, he is always faithful to speak, speak truths that are useful to us. So, although this is not exhaustive on the topic of Pentecost, it's not exhaustive on the coming Holy Spirit, on prophecy, tongues, the sovereignty of God, or human responsibility, and a myriad of other topics. Our aim tonight is to consider three major parts in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, 36, excuse me. And the first part that we're going to look at in the book of Acts is that of promise. The second is that of prophecy. And the third and final piece that we're going to look at this evening is that of proclamation. So promise, prophecy, and proclamation is what we're going to look at this evening. We're going to look at them separately, initially, and then we're going to put them together and ask how they relate to one another in hopes to see the application and consider what it means for you and I today. So, let's begin by looking at the first topic of promise. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, tell us that on the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The setting of the promise is here in Jerusalem. We just left chapter 1, right, with the addition of Matthias. The 12 disciples of Jesus are there, and with them the, uh, the 120, and they're all together in one place. We are pa- uh, waiting patiently as they're called to do so, and Jesus makes the promise that the Holy Spirit will come. We don't really know how long they wait, but we do know that Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. Passover was the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples before he was um, uh, betrayed, crucified, and buried in the tomb, and where three days later he rose. We know that Passover was a time to remember and to celebrate God's faithfulness to his people to bring them out of slavery and of bondage to Egypt and lead them into the promised land. Pentecost 
was the second of the annual harvest feasts that the Jews celebrated as a culture, and oftentimes it resulted in a pilgrimage of many Jews not living in Jerusalem at the time to actually journey towards Jerusalem to be at the temple to worship God together. So that is the larger context for when the promised Holy Spirit comes. We aren't exactly sure as to where these people were meeting, although it's most likely a home, a large home. It's actually most likely not the temple because the Greek word that uh, Luke uses um, here in these texts is a different Greek word that Luke uses in other places to describe the temple. So what is at play here and what is most likely possible is that a large home in close proximity to the temple that can hold 120-some people is where they might be gathered. And as the expression of the Holy Spirit comes through the use of tongues, that event, it bubbles out of the home and into the side streets and grabs the attention of many, resulting in the multitudes bearing witness to the event of Pentecost. So that's the context for the promise. It's in Jerusalem, more than likely all 120 followers of Jesus present, including the disciples, in a large room, in a large home, within earshot of the temple, to which many individuals from all across the known world just so happen to be visiting. So, let's look at the promise more directly. They're all together, and then suddenly... We're told, from heaven, like a sound, like a mighty rushing wind fills the house, where tongue-like images made of fire begin to appear and then begin to descend upon them. The Greek word literally means that they, they rested or that they sat upon the individuals. And verse 4 tells us the result, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit directed. Can you imagine? Like what an amazing sight and experience to see something like that. So how do we understand what happened? And how do we, to the best of our abilities, walk in faith to what happened? In church history, maybe more so in the last several decades, my opinion is that there has been some squirrely theology that has been wrapped up with this event and similar events, actually, in the book of Acts that we are going to see and some of Paul's writing on the topic of tongues and the proper use of those gifts in the life of the church. The reality is we don't have time to talk about the latter part this evening. We do, however, desire to dig deep into what Acts chapter 2 tells us as to what happened with the coming of the Holy Spirit. So some quick observations. First, we see that the coming of the Holy Spirit is marked by a heavenly, mighty wind. It takes the shape of a fiery tongue, and then it rests or sat upon individuals. 
And although some of these elements may seem quite strange to us, if we're honest, in the context of God's word, many of these signs and the expression that the signs of the Holy Spirit that are done are actually in line with the way in which God chose to express himself in the past. Consider Jesus' words concerning the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3, verses 6 and 8, right? He's talking to Nicodemus and expressing the supernatural event of being born again, and Jesus says this, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Consider with me the times that God's presence was expressed in the form of fire in the Old Testament. God's presence comes as a fire in the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, verse 2. The pillar of fire at night, that's what God's presence is, is a pillar of fire as he leads his people out of bondage towards the promised land. God's presence was seen as a consuming fire in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 38, where Elijah, we remember the story, Elijah is making an offering to the Lord and he begins to put stones upon stones and then he places wood upon the stones and then what does he ask the people to do? Pour water on it. A lot of water. The text tells us so much water that there's a trench that is either made or formed to contain the water. And then 1 Kings 18, verse 38 says, The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God's presence was within the fiery lightning that called out Ezekiel. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, God declares himself as the all-consuming fire. See, what we see happening here at Pentecost is the unquestionable connection between God's presence, the ways that he's shown his presence in the past, and his current presence with the individuals at Pentecost. Leaving no doubt, actually, in the minds of individuals seeing the events taking place as having nothing to do other than be the promise of God's presence to them. His Spirit coming to them. The promise for God to pour out His Spirit has deep roots in the Old Testament. We can look at this kind of on our own time. Numbers chapter 11, Isaiah chapter 32 and 44, Ezekiel 36, just to name a couple of them. And the promised Holy Spirit takes the shape of tongues of fire. 
prior to resting on the followers of Jesus. And once these flaming uh, tongues rest on them, the Spirit, as we see in verse 4, supernaturally empowers the individuals to begin to speak in tongues. I think our understanding of this expression of tongues ought to be um, somewhat um, confined or at least um, largely informed to what we see in these verses. And so what do we see? First, we see that tongues is a supernatural working of the Spirit. It's not something that man conjured up. It's something that God was doing. Second, that the Spirit allows individuals to speak a known language unknown to the speaker. Thirdly, that the purpose of individuals empowered by the Spirit to speak a language they don't yet know was twofold in this text. The first, it was for the edification of the unsaved. We see that in verse 12. As some individuals hearing what they were hearing, all in their own language, they stand amazed. That's what the text tells us. It's for the edification of those that God was drawing to himself. That's the first purpose. And the second, I believe, was the edification and the assurance of existing followers of Jesus who had the Spirit poured out on them. We see that communicated in verse 14 as Peter, standing among them, begins to communicate what and why all that just happened is happening. That's the promise. And that, Paul beginning to stand up and to communicate what and why all this is happening leads us to the second point for our e- this evening, which is the idea of prophecy. In short, we see three specific Old Testament passages that Paul draws our attention to. First, from, chapter, uh, uh, from Joel chapter 2, which Peter helps the audience see that God foretold and promised the coming of the Holy Spirit, that in these last days, in the days that are now, where God would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. The word picture here in verse 17 of Acts chapter 2 is that of a torrential downpour of God's blessing onto a dry and drought barren earth where individuals of all kinds, men, women, children, adults, of every kind of class and ethnicity will be indwelt by the promised Holy Spirit. Whereas verse 21 concludes that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The second prophetic passage that Peter shares comes from Psalms chapter 16, where we see the words of David as being fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that that the heart is glad to see that death has been defeated at the foot of Jesus. 
That the result is the rejoicing to the Lord for those who believe in Jesus will not be gathered into Hades awaiting the pending judgment for sin. The third and final prophetic passage that Peter draws our attention to is out of Psalms 110 where we see the glorious ascension of Christ. David was not writing about himself as we learn in these verses but instead was looking ahead and giving prophetic word to the reality of Christ's eternal reign upon the throne. At first glance, these passages may seem a little disjointed. But Peter draws upon the prophetic reality of first, the promised Holy Spirit, second, the resurrection of Jesus, and lastly, the glorious ascension of Christ. Giving testimony to God's faithful working of his eternal plan to bring forth salvation to people through the name of Jesus Christ. which leads us to our last and final piece for tonight, which is proclamation. What we see from verses 14 through 36 is Peter's testimony of the amazing truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the Son of God, was sent by God to redeem the world from their sin where he was crucified, where he was raised from the dead and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And as we will see in greater fashion next week, for all those who repent, who acknowledge their own sin before God and turn away from their sins and align with God through faith in Jesus Christ, they can be saved. That is the promise it is the prophecy and it is the proclamation all connected towards one glorious end. As we consider the reality that the promise, the prophecy really in many ways gives way to the promise. It gives us as readers a foreshadow of what was to come and an inside look as to what was really taking place. The prophecy gives way to the promised Holy Spirit that God pouring out his, uh, on his people his indwelling power. Where once God's presence was among his people, Sometimes in nature, oftentimes in the temple, God's presence is now beginning in Acts chapter 2, not merely among, but within his people. And we've seen that this unique expression of the Holy Spirit done in in such a way as a rushing wind, as, a, as, as fiery tongues was done so that there would be no doubt of what was transpiring. To fulfill the promises made by God to his people and the unique expression of the promised Holy Spirit allowing individuals to speak a language they did not yet know was the ultimate purpose so that it would be proclaimed.
Daryl Bach puts it this way, these tongues function as an evangelistic enablement so that each person can hear about God's work in his or her own language. That, I believe, is the point of tongues in Acts chapter 2. To be an evangelistic enablement. As God pours out his spirit on his people, what better way would you or I know that God at the ground level of blessing his people to help his people and the people that are not yet his people know that he is a God of all peoples. I'd submit that there is no better way to help them and help us today to see the inclusive nature of God's heart towards all peoples than for him to supernaturally break through cultural and ethnic barriers than to proclaim his great acts and do that in their own language. What we see gathering in Jerusalem at the time is Jews and many converted Jews, which are those proselytes that we see in the verses, who more than likely were a part of the great Jewish um, dysphoria, people that were um, Jewish, not living in Palestine at the time, where God gathered them in and proclaimed his mighty works to them in their own language, opening the door for Peter to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we will see next week, many repent and believe. Acts chapter 2. Promise, prophecy, proclamation. As I prepared for the sermon, oftentimes I have my Bible and it's left open. And then next to my Bible is usually some kind of a notepad, whether it's digital or a piece of paper. And as I read, I write questions that I have. What does that mean? What did he mean by that? Why this, not that? Usually there's a lot of questions. And as I process through Acts chapter 2, honestly, I feel like as I've been processing through the book of Acts as a whole up to this one, up to this point, one major question continues to stand out in my mind. God, that is, it's awesome what you did in Acts chapter 2. The movement of the Spirit poured out Strong movements, supernatural power used for the sake of proclaiming the gospel and expanding your kingdom. That is awesome. But I have to ask, do you still do stuff like that today? And if you do, do I see it? A 
believe we would all like theologically agree that the Spirit of God is moving. I think we would agree that no one comes to saving faith without the Spirit of God giving them life. But if I'm honest, I live far too much of my life, most days at a minimum, questioning if not actively believing that God simply doesn't work that way anymore. I struggle to see overt moments of the Spirit of God in my life, and I'm struck with the question, why? Why is that? And as I process through that question, I wrestle with other questions. Other questions begin to surface, like, what's more likely true? God has changed, or I'm not seeing what he's up to. And if I'm not seeing what he's up to, why is that? What elements in my life ought to change so that I might see better or more clearly? Over the last several days, um, this is the conclusion that Emily and I have come to for Emily and I. I can only speak for Emily and I because I haven't had the conversation with you. So I'll share with you the conclusions that we've reached I hope it's helpful to you in some way. God has not changed. His spirit is moving. His kingdom is coming. But we struggle to see him move in overt ways for primarily two reasons in our life. Probably a lot of them, but these are the two major ones as we discuss. First, As we see here in Acts, and we will continue to see in the book of Acts, the Spirit empowers individuals in amazing ways when individuals are obediently walking in faith to proclaim the good news of Jesus. We are going to see that over and over and over again in the book of Acts. Therefore, it's possible for Emily and I that we don't live lives where we are in dependent need for the Spirit of God to show up as we walk in faith to proclaim the gospel to people that don't yet know the gospel. We need and desire to continue to grow in our pursuit as individuals and as a family to step out in faith in obedience to participate in God's grand plan to bring salvation to people through the proclamation of the gospel empowered by spirit-filled people. We simply do need to grow in our obedience fueled by our love and our affection for the gospel, what Jesus has done for us, and eagerly watch for the Spirit to move. That's the first reason. The second reason that Emily and I struggle to see the movement of the Spirit is that we are spiritually unaware We operate in this life with a lot, and I mean a lot, of logical planning. Cause and effect thinking. 
Because this, well then that. Rationalizing true movements of the Spirit of God, usurping his credit and giving it to other things. I think the most recent way that this has shown up in our lives was through uh, this block harvest party that Emily planned a couple weeks ago. She scheduled out uh, games for kids, activities for adults, put on a chili cookout, went around our cul-de-sac, engaged most households to set up a specific game in their front yard. Saturday night came. There's 10 houses in my cul-de-sac. Seven out of 10 families showed up. There was like 45 plus people on our patio. Some really good chili. Some better than others. But that was the whole point. Seven chilies that I got to taste and judge along with everybody else and awards were handed out. It was a blast. A huge success. And as Emily and I reflected on that, here's the conclusions that we have come to. We are far more comfortable and quick to assign the results of that to good planning and effort than we are to the movement of the Spirit of God to draw people to himself. We logically conclude that it was a success because Emily got on the ball like four to six weeks ago. Spent lots of hours building out the vision and executing on it. That people really do like being together. You just need to show up with some effort and somebody needs to initiate. None of that effort's bad. But as we reflect on it, as we consider our planning, walking up to it, and as we reflect on our reflection of the event, we operate a lot of the time simply spiritually unaware. And if we are honest, both our preparation towards things and how we think about them on the backside reveal our heart that can be spiritually void of dependence. don't really know where you're at this evening. As I said, these are just the conclusions that Emily and I have come to in our own home. But you may find yourself asking some of the same questions that Emily and I have. Maybe struggling with some of the same challenges. If so, I want to encourage us all to consider our spiritual awareness. In all contexts of life, walking in faith to participate in proclaiming the gospel, maybe you aren't in those contexts. Maybe that is why you aren't seeing the Spirit move, to be really honest and frank. Maybe you are in those contexts, but you, like me, can too easily rationalize them away. 
two practical steps Emily and I want to grow in together as it pertains to our spiritual awareness is that we want to um, grow in our prayer together. Prayer, in many ways, is the expression of dependence and the need for God to show up. And we want to grow in that together as a couple, not just individually. Emily and I need to spend more time praying together, not putting aside good planning or execution, but pairing it expressing and asking God to show up. And then on the backside of our reflection, we often ask each other, so how did it go? Did a girls' night the other night, hey, how'd it go? We do a lot of debriefing in our home. Emily is always kind to listen to me rant. And one of the ways that we want to grow is by simply changing our question to be more pointed about, hey, what do you see God doing? As opposed to the general question of, so hey, how did it go? We want to be people that point one another's perspectives to the reality that God is moving. We should consider how he's doing it. Maybe you can help somebody in this way help point them towards what the Spirit might be up to compared to participating, as I often do, in rationalizing it. My prayer is that we would participate and see the Spirit of God move in this church for the same two glorious reasons that we saw it move in the book of Acts for the edification of the church and the advancement of the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you are ever good and ever faithful in the midst of unfaithfulness and wrestle of sin and broken people, and um, you continue, Lord Jesus, to call us and beckon us towards you. In the midst of the mire, uh, you, because of what you've done through the face of your son, Jesus, see us as your sons and daughters. So God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would open our eyes to be spiritually aware of the reality that you are moving. That we would so um, be desirous of you moving in our lives and in the lives of this city for your name and the the glory that is due your name and the good of your blood-bought people that we would would, um, um, be spirit-dependent, that we'd walk in faith to what you're calling us to do. That we do that as families, that we would do that as a family of families in this church. That we'd let the results ultimately be up to you, Lord Jesus, because you cause the growth, but you would grow us in obedience as we f- uh, fan into fame, into, into flame, the love and the affection that we have for you because of what you've done for us. 
that we would grab hold of the realities of your promise and your prophecy that gives way to your promise and your promise which, which gives way to proclamation, God, that this is your plan A of how you desire to see the gospel go forth and for lives to be changed. I pray that you would do that in this church. That we'd be humbly obedient, eagerly anticipating what you would do. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.